You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Billy Smith. Billy is a non-binary, queer, yoga and movement teacher, abuse and eating disorder survivor, plant lover, and business owner. Their business, Move With Billy, specializes in teaching online, anti-diet culture, queer-safe, trauma-informed movement classes, and one-on-one coaching. You can learn more about Billy at movewithbilly.com or check out the link in the show notes to download their free Rebel Movement Starter Kit. This conversation is truly an eye-opening one, and I hope it helps you approach your relationship with movement differently. Please enjoy this episode of the show. Hi, Billy. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing so well. It's great to see you today. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited. It's a true pleasure. I feel like I'm always looking for guests to talk about movement because I find eating disorders can be really like connected to disordered movement. So I'm 100%. Yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show and I can't wait to dive in with you. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm excited. Awesome. It's movement is like so connected to not just in the like explicitly in eating disorder stuff, but there's so much that can be hard to even notice until you start to like talk about it more or hear about it more. And you're like, oh yeah, like this isn't just a me thing. This is like the way that movement was taught to me. So Mm, that's so interesting. I (laughs) figure that out and dive in with you. (laughs) Yeah, It's like, we're all swimming in this toxic ocean when it comes to movement and Mm. you don't even realize the environment is toxic until you start your recovery journey and can look at the world with a more critical eye. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. So, before we dive into all of that, I'd love to just ask you, what exactly is an anti-diet yoga and movement teacher? Yeah. So the one half of it is a little bit more easy to explain. Like I teach yoga. I also teach workout classes and some like more mobility focused workout classes. And that part's pretty, you know, pretty easy to figure out. But then the other part is something that I think is a little harder to put, but I'll try my best to explain it. It's there's like no, not just that there's no weight loss or like diet culture type talk in the classes. There's no like, I don't know, yoga for weight loss or yoga for tightening and toning or like any of those more obvious things that are very steeped in diet culture, but it's also, I'm also very like specifically anti-diet. So I'm not just going to, you know, not say the things that diet culture might have influenced in other studios or gyms. I'm also going to, depending on the context, 
encourage you to kind of reflect on your own relationship to movement and diet culture. So recognizing like, say, for example, like no pain, no gain is something that we'll often hear in the movement world. But like how much of that is diet culture? How much of that is true? And like, how do you relate to that? You know, if that's the way you've always approached movement, like why? And like kind of digging into that. Some of those bigger, bigger reflecting things is more of a one-on-one, obviously, context. But I'm not just a space that's, you know, not going to say any of the things that like weight lossy phrases. I'm a space that like I'm going to actively talk about how diet culture has influenced most people like westernized movement world and help to kind of figure out what that means mm. on an individual basis, Is that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, totally. So I'm hearing that you do the movement piece, but also the education around anti-diet, thinking critically about the messages you've picked up about exercise and how you've internalized those in a way and how it shows up in your life. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Yeah, it's important because we are taught some pretty harmful messages about movement baseline, Mm -hmm. just like entering into the world. And I'm really curious to hear about some of that. But I did want to also ask you about your own experience with an eating disorder. So I'd love to hear a little Mm -hmm. bit about the development of your eating disorder and whether or not exercise was a part of that. Yeah, it started off quite, I don't say subtle, but looking back, it isn't subtle, but at the time it felt subtle or felt normalized, I guess. I grew up in an environment that was emotionally abusive. And one of the things that was like one of the top picked on things was size, my body size and what I ate. So I grew up with quite strict and very unrealistic rules around food. Like now I didn't know some of them weren't true until like into adulthood where I, you know, ended up saying them for some reason. And someone's like, where did you hear that? You know what I mean? So it was very normalized. Looking back, it wasn't subtle for sure. It was very obvious and explicit, but I didn't know at the time. So I kind of grew up in this environment where my body was constantly criticized and it was very connected to like, people won't love you. People will use you. Like you can't be successful or loved. Like it's very connected to Mm. everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. which I think it is for a lot of people, but it was very like, you know, told to me by the people who are like raising me. Oh, if they're saying it, it must be true. Mm-hmm. So I honestly couldn't tell you exactly when it started, like when it turned from disordered into an eating disorder, but it hit one of its peaks when I was, I think like grade eight or something. Okay. So what, 12, 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was restricting what I was eating by a lot. And I was overexercising by a lot. And from there, I, you know, would, as often happens, like go into more extremes and more extremes. And I was like counting calories and like very closely for a really long time. And I sort of like dipped in and out of like the severity of it, basically from then until probably into college. At some point, it switched from, you know, when I left this world altogether when I was like trying more actively to heal from my eating disorder. But I added on top of that, like orthorexia, like in very into like, what is the like in quotes, like healthiest ways. I was like, you know, cutting all these things out of my diet because they were like, quote, unhealthy or whatever reason I had. And 
I was actually working with a holistic nutritionist who definitely was not actually helping me with this. They were giving me more fuel for this fire. So over the years, changed the way it looked a lot. And like when I was in that phase and that orthorexia phase, I didn't think I was anything. I was like, oh, I'm just being so healthy. I don't have an eating disorder. I'm past that. But I definitely wasn't. I was definitely not, (laughs) definitely not out of it. But that's sort of how it started Mm -hmm. because it was very connected to my approval from people like who are supposed to unconditionally love you. I went down that road and like, you know, when I would be at like the one of the peaks and it was more visible that I was going through this, I would have more approval. So it was like mm-hmm. so many different approaches at it and that kind of thing. Wow. So when yeah. you were an adult and kind of finally out of that unhealthy environment that you grew up in, when did you start to see that that was a harmful environment and that those messages were not normal? The harm of the dieting environment. That's a good question. I want to say it was probably very connected for me. I started to learn some of the emotional abuse side of things in teacher training, actually, my first teacher training. It was a space where I was like, I felt accepted and loved as I was, and I was really uncomfortable with that. (laughs) And then I had this moment of like, wait a minute, why is this uncomfortable for me? Why is that the part that's hard for me? And then everything sort of started to unravel. I think there was seeds before then. There was points where I was starting to move away from the eating disorder stuff because I was in therapy. I was starting to see that some of it was like definitely a coping mechanism. And when I started to you know, get to some of the roots of the other emotional stuff that started to ease off slightly. Like it felt like some of the pressure was off. So when I sort of started to see, I guess my perspective changed on what was actually happening in my life and what I had always thought was my fault was actually not. And then that took like, it was about another, I don't know, maybe another year before everything really officially clicked in. But I also was really lucky to have the support of someone who's in town where I live, who is a, I'm trying to remember how they were calling their services at the time. They were in the anti-diet world and they were, I think they were doing more intuitive eating, but like not the diet culture intuitive version of eating. Intuitive eating. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was like a, it's a tricky phrase because I think that's been taken and used in other contexts. I had all the pieces were starting to unravel. And then this person who was, just, I was so lucky to have their support. They started giving me more of the data and like books to read that were like, hey, diets don't work. And this is why diet culture is a thing. And this is why, you know, this is something we've been conditioned into. And they have really, really supported and helped me to do all of those big steps of like, oh, wait a minute, these messages I was taught are right. It was like, this is what we've been conditioned into believing. I don't know if that made any sense, but there was like... (laughs) Some of the smaller things were really connected to me, like going to therapy and like starting to confront some of the feelings I've been avoiding and recognizing I had a problem with the eating disorder. And then the other bigger steps were very much supported. So thank you for sharing all of that. I'm sure so many people can relate to the idea of taking on dieting because it's a source of approval, like it gives Mm -hmm. that approval. So how did you start to unlearn that? That's a good question too. I think in some ways I could 
recognize that it's not a great source of approval. Like I'm already a valid person. Honestly, I think it was yoga that helped me with some of this stuff of like the message that I could just exist in my body and be safe on my mat and breathe. And that was enough. I had some pretty great teachers over the years. And a few of them would just say, you know, the message that I could just literally lay there the whole time, that was fine, was such a big thing. And it, you know, and they meant it in the yoga context, but it ended up really sinking in, in a daily life context too. I had that message to some degree, but I think I needed to recognize that the emotional abuse was happening and cut contact and make those decisions to realize that on a deeper level. Because even if I knew it on these more simple contexts or in these other contexts, that message was still there to some degree because I was still I was still in the situation it's just yeah. in some respects. So I really needed to make like set that boundary before I could actually like on a really deep level recognize that I just am valuable. I don't need you know, to change my body to become the like optimal kid, like daughter or whatever. Like I deserve that the whole time. Mm, That's so powerful. And I think it's really helpful for some people to hear that sometimes that's what needs to be done. And you can choose to do that. Like there are barriers to healing, right? And if there is an unhealthy person or people in your life that keep enforcing messages that are harmful to your life, it's okay to set that boundary. What advice do you have for people who find themselves in that situation? Find support in other places, like whether it's therapy or if that's not an option for you, like a friend who actually feels like home. Do you know what I mean? Like a friend who is there for all of the parts, not a friend who you, you know, won't share your emotional stuff with because you want someone who can like see all of you and accept it and whatever, you know, friend, partner, therapist, whatever, pay attention to how you feel with them versus other people. Because however you approach it, it's a really messy ride and I'm not going to lie to you, it sucks, but it's so worth it because one day you'll look back and you'll be like, it wasn't me. I was never the problem. And you'll actually believe it. Like you'll believe it completely. You're worth that. You deserve that. Find support from someone who actually sees you and accepts you and not someone who makes you feel like you're, you know, you don't have the right to be with them or whatever. Yeah. So helpful. Thank you for that. I think that that advice can just go so far. And that saying you said, which is, I know deep in my core, I am not actually the problem. I also want people to recognize that in their core, their body is not the problem. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, your body is not the problem. It's never been the problem. Maybe it was how you were raised. Maybe it was the coping skill that, you know, was the safest one for you. Maybe it was diet culture itself and everywhere you see it in magazines and movies and stuff. But it's so hard to see because we've been raised with it like it's a part of the family. And it's so difficult to unpersonalize it, like mm. like move that, like to shift into a I, my body is not the problem. It's society. It's the way I was raised, it's whatever. And it can feel really discouraging, especially because it's everywhere. Diet culture messaging is everywhere. But I like, I promise you, your body is not the problem and it's never been the problem. Mm, yeah, such a helpful reminder. And, you know, that's why I think discovering the anti-diet movement is so valuable for people. I think it's a pill yeah. in eating disorder recovery. Like, I don't think you mm. can, really get through recovery without diving into this stuff. And 
what it means to be anti-diet and being able to look at diet culture with that lens of the questioning eye instead of the one that was blindly accepting everything as fact, like accepting Mm -hmm. all those messages as if they were the only truth there is, right? So on that note, I'm really intrigued to, you mentioned in the beginning of the interview that it's really sneaky to be a part of this world and start to kind of identify those messages and see them as like problematic. So I'm curious, what are some of those messages that you typically help your clients unpack? Yeah, it's interesting because there's quite a few different perspectives people who've come to work with me because it all depends on, you know, their own history with movement and stuff like that. But I've had quite a few people who've come to me who've had like, what do you call it? Uh, Competitive sports Mm. style um, relationship with movement. Mm-hmm. And in some of their contexts, it's um, the realization that your movement practice doesn't have to be like a whole hour or several hours a day. It doesn't have to be every single day. Um, that it can be a 20 minute mo- like workout, or it can be a really chill yoga class. Um, that it can be you listening to your body and deciding to do one squat for example and then just chill for the rest of the time that you don't have to your workout or your practice whatever it is you're doing doesn't have to look any particular way it can be like going for a walk and that's valid it can be whatever works for you and it doesn't have to be so focused on perfection and there's also been people who've come to me who've had you know who've tried different types of movement and were immediately judged whenever they stepped into the room because of the way their body looked and then felt like they needed to prove this person wrong or like had to prove that they had a right to be there Mm. and maybe wouldn't listen to their body like similar to the other folks but in a different way and they would maybe push themselves or you know try to in both respects it's really like not listening to your body and pushing yourself past a point that is comfortable or beneficial and very focused on like the idea that movement is for weight loss. And also there's so many better reasons to move your body. It's very individual, but there's a lot of common themes. And that's one of the biggest ones. It's like movement doesn't have to suck. (laughs) You don't have to hate it the whole time. It does not have to be like forever. It doesn't have to take your whole day. Like you can get a lot out of like a workout where you're not you know, at your extreme the whole time and hating every second of it, it can look a lot different. Mm, So true. I feel like I also see people doing movement to punish themselves. Like they think movement is a punishing factor for them. And you just nodded your head. So I can tell you see that (laughs) a lot too. I do. Yes, I do. Sometimes it's fun to see that moment where they realize that in their face or in the practice. (laughs) And it's one of my favorite moments is when people have these like, I don't know if breakthroughs is the right word, but they have these like, they're like, oh, whoa, like I didn't, (laughs) I didn't know this didn't have to be a punishment. I didn't know that this had to be, or this didn't have to be painful and excruciating for like two hours of my day or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's probably pretty amazing to watch that. I know <laughs> it was groundbreaking for me because when I had my eating disorder, it was definitely very connected to calories and like just burning as much as you can. And and now it's more about feeling good. It's more about fun for me. It's a lot about music for me. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> nice. things like that are totally like mm. not even really related to the actual moving itself. Like it's like being outside, having mm. fun, listening to music. Like so yeah. it has so much potential, but there are those like weird diet culture messages that just become ingrained in all of us. Yeah. It takes a little bit to to get some of them because some of them are, I say sneaky because some of them are more obvious. Like say, for example, a movement doesn't have to be a punishment, like that we can we can kind of recognize that or we can see like, oh, it doesn't have to be, you know, this super intense cardio every day. It's almost like you're realizing it in layers. And then there's moments where you're like, oh, wait, I thought that I had to feel this certain feeling in my body for it to be a valid practice. Like this is what punishment felt like in my body. And now when I feel that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, no, this doesn't feel good. Like I'm stepping to the wrong extreme or something. Like I'm going to adjust. There's like layers and layers of realizing it and it almost like sinking into your body and what that means. Mm, very interesting. Like another thing that I hear all the time that I think takes so much effort and consciousness to break free from is like the earn and burn mentality. So I need to basically burn this so I can earn my food or I need to work out so I can, you know, feel like I have permission to eat. Do you do anything in your practice to help people unlearn that? And how would you like support someone through that? Something that has been like touched on in the group class situations, but it is something that is is much easier to dive into in a one-on-one session because then you can be a little bit more specific. Like it's vulnerable, right? And it is just easier for the other person often to feel like they can actually feel these things and express them and talk about them when it's just the two of us. But I think it's it's also important to like check where you're getting that message too. But I very much have definitely had that conversation several times or saying like reminding that you do not have to earn food, that you already deserve food because you exist and you need food to survive and to live. In some of these contexts, it is helpful to read some of the books that go into the science aspect of it. I'm not like the, I'm not a scientist. I can't, I can't say that I could give any of that information in the same way that some of the other experts can. But I think the most helpful approach, at least in my experience, is like a very diverse support system for that. So it's like noticing who you're following on Instagram. Are they giving you that message? Like unfollow them or mute them or whatever. And like reading books of people who've been through this journey who or people who know all the science behind it. I have a list of resources on my website too. You know, some people will talk about it with me and then they will also talk about it with their therapist. And then they will also talk about it with like more of a... Dietitian. Dietitian, thank you. So it really depends on the individual's needs. But yes, like very long answer to say yes. And also sometimes I will recommend other things. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Because honestly, you can look at your beliefs related to movement at so many angles. So that's whether you're talking about that belief with a dietitian specifically or a therapist and the roots of it or like 
you know, a coach, right? So that makes a lot of sense. It's pretty interesting. I think when I was going through my eating disorder, the whole earn and burn mentality was definitely ingrained for me. And for me, it was a sheer lack of education. Like I thought calories were just used like as fuel for exercise. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that my body needed that fuel for so many other functions. So I was like, this is great. I'll just like lose weight or stay the same size because I will just make sure I burn everything I eat. But in reality, I was just depleting my body because I didn't have the education of, did you know that calories are used for brain function, heart function, skin, nails, you know, everything. So when people are afraid of weight gain, I always have to remind them, like, that's the very last piece of your body. That's your body storing the excess, like, fuel. It's really like using so much for so many things baseline. That helped me break free from the earn and burn mentality. But again, lack of education. And I think also leaning into the hunger and fullness cues and just recognizing like you're better off honoring that than suffering. And yeah, the intuitive help too. Yeah. I think that it's also important to recognize that like weight gain doesn't necessarily always mean like we've been conditioned to think that it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I get that I can't just say that and you'll believe me if you're in that period of your eating disorder or recovery, but our health and our size are not, are not one of the same. They're not related. And all of the, you know, quote unquote evidence we've been given that it is like BMI is completely not true, but that sometimes gaining weight is your body becoming its version of healthy. Like if you've been like if you haven't been fueling your body and you've been over exercising or if you just haven't been fueling your body likely you have deficiencies in you know who who knows how many areas like maybe anemia maybe you know you're probably not very energetic you're probably pretty fatigued at some point your body ends up needing to basically use itself as fuel so you lose muscle so there's so many things that that like weight gain could be from and it's not necessarily like oh I'm like it's not like oh I'm eating too much it's like hey I haven't been getting any nutrients that I need for so long and I know we've been conditioned to focus on how we look but start to notice how you feel like I know that that's a hard thing to do but like take a second do a little check-in in your body how do you sleep what's your energy level like How do you feel when your body moves around your day-to-day? And then think about how you felt before. Because I'm going to guess if it's anything like my experience, like my clients' experiences, is likely when you're starting to eat and fuel your body better and move your body not for punishment, you start to feel less achy, less injuries like pulled muscles and stuff like that, probably a lot less fatigue or hopefully tons less fatigue. You start to actually be able to sleep. You start to be able to feel like more grounded in your body. I remember at one point I was like, it's just how people feel all the time. Like they just have energy to do things all the time. I was like, how that's not fair. Like I didn't know. (laughs) So I like, I know we've been conditioned to focus on the looks, but 
try, like even write down somewhere, like take a, a minute in your day, check in with how you feel when you move your body for mobility or for stress relief or whatever, instead of punishment and how you feel when you eat more and like listening to your body to what you need, because weight loss is not the worst or weight gain is not the worst thing at all. And it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything negative about you as a person or you as a how whatever you do in your career or in your relationships, it's like a tiny factor that's not really related to health at all. Mm, powerful. I'm so glad you brought that <laughs> up because I feel like so many people listening look at the people surrounding them who have gained weight and just immediately jump to conclusions about that person. Yeah. And it's all weight stigma and it's like, oh, this person gained weight. I hear it all the time. She yeah. lost control. She, you know, yeah. must be having our time. Right. Yeah, you. No, it's mm-hmm. okay. It's like that the stigma there, it's always assuming something went wrong or something they're doing that is wrong. Where in reality, like I know going through recovery, you learn really quick, like weight gain is actually meaning it means usually you're doing something right. And then you also start to see that weight gain could mean so many other things that are positive. Like, for instance, like if a person gains weight because they're on new medication that's making them like a happier person, why are we going to shame them for that weight gain, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you don't understand like that person, if you're looking at that person and thinking, they are doing something wrong or they're out of control. Like there are so many instances where weight gain means positive change. Yeah. When I was at my smallest, I was so tired all the time. I couldn't focus. I mean, that might be other things, <laughs> but I like had, I was exhausted. I felt, honestly, I felt like crap every day, all day. All I thought about was food. All I thought about was like this constant cycle of like, shame against my body, against my food choices. There is so much, like I wasn't sleeping very well. There's so many areas. I just felt like crap. And now I stopped paying attention to my weight, but I'm definitely not the size I was then. I sleep better. I have more energy. Like I said, I had several moments where I was like, oh, okay. Like I, this is what people feel like. (laughs) I realized, you know, I was anemic and I had several moments where I realized, like, no wonder I felt like crap. Like, you can never look at someone and ever understand anything about their health. It's not a thing that we can do, but we have been taught and conditioned from movies and stuff that, like, when you see someone who's lost weight, they're like, oh, wow, they're doing so great. Like, great job. But no one, like, I was really unhealthy when I was yeah. at my smallest. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't particularly like the word healthy, but in this context, like, I was, I was really sick, basically. And now... Like when I gained weight, no one said anything like, oh, great job. That's when I realized like, hey, I haven't been absorbing any protein for like years <laughs> and I've been exhausted for years. And yeah, there's like, you know, you can never tell. And I really hope we can stop, like just stop commenting on other people's bodies or stop assuming anything about anyone else's life based on any changes in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there is a trade-off to choosing your eating disorder or choosing recovery and trade off to losing weight and gaining weight. And like, Mm -hmm. I just have to say, like, it's really powerful when you can get to the point of recognizing 
like striving for that thin body is not worth the trade-off of like all of the benefits mm. that this extra weight that I, my body needs gives me. Right. And yeah. I definitely experienced that. Like even just being able to get to higher weight for me, like being back into my set point range. Right. And having the freedom of eating what I wanted and like being able to enjoy that and choose that mm. based on just like listening to the eating disorder. Like mm. I wanted to be thin, I'd have to give that up mm-hmm. right? or be that lower set point. I know I live in a straight size body now, but it's like to get to that eating disorder size, there was like, I'd have to give up all of those amazing benefits that I had discovered. So it's really interesting. So my advice for everyone listening is when you do restore weight or you do have body changes where you are gaining weight, just sit and chill with that change for a little bit. You don't have mm-hmm. to react, you know, just let yourself experience life in that way and observe the difference, observe mm-hmm. the energy change, observe the sleep changes, the mood changes and all of that. Yeah. And I would say a big shift that is important too is how you approach your movement. And what helps me do that like shift from like the disordered movement over-exercising to where I am now is recognizing the impact it had, like the movement had on in other areas. For me, it was my mental health. It was my first biggest one is it felt like, sometimes it felt like when I moved my body, like yoga, I think it probably was at that point. I felt like I could breathe for the first time. It was like that sense of like relief. And also I could be more present and it just felt easier to exist in my body when I was moving my body or when I was like practicing yoga you know, like once a week or whatever it is. And it's not always necessarily the same for everybody. For some people, I have a client who had used to have tons of back pain often. And if they had, you know, say they were sick and they had to be in bed for more than normal, they'd have like, then they'd have a huge back flare up and they wouldn't be able to move afterwards. And I have some classes that really focus on mobility. And when they're practicing these classes, they don't have any back pain. They don't wake up and feel in pain every day. You know, it's still there sometimes, but it's for the most part, it's basically gone. I have other clients who that's like they have kids and that's like their time to just be by themselves and like take care of themselves and listen to their own body. And some clients who like that's how they process their anger or their sadness or they just have fun with it. Like there's so many reasons to move. And one of the first things is like pick things that are fun. Like if you liked dance when you were a kid, you don't have to go to a dance class if you don't want to, but like put on a fun song and like wiggle around your living room doesn't matter what it looks like <laughs> like you know close the curtains cover up the mirrors if you need help <laughs> you have that help but like just like go with it or like for me it was yoga so going back to yoga or you know walks if you like being in nature like find things that feel good and then notice how you feel again notice how you feel in your body when you're moving after you're moving and see if you can catch yourself before you push into any extremes like Check in a couple times. If you were to rate where you're at, like one to 10 in terms of intensity or mood, where are you at? And I don't mean like if you went, if you started the movement practice in a bad mood, that's different. But like, I think we can all kind of feel there's like a threshold where you're no longer, like no longer fun. Once you had practice, it's easier to tell. And sometimes we will push, you know, if you're, I don't know, preparing for like a 5K or something, or if, 
cardio or intense stuff is helpful for stress, then in those contexts, once you've been practicing for a long time, we can like push into that a little bit. But when you're earlier on in your recovery, try your hardest to notice, like, does this actually feel good in my body? Or am I just doing this because I feel like I have to? Mm-hmm. Like, so in one of my warmups, or one of the things in my warmup, I've had several different, you know, say like we do these three to stay and those three to stay. Some students have said like this particular one, they just don't like it. It doesn't feel good. Or, you know, they have an injury, you know, feels weird in their hips. Like there's, you know, a million reasons and they'll just do the other thing. They just do the other thing because it feels better in their body instead of feeling like you have to do this particular thing because I said you had to do it. So I think it can help to find a space where it's like safer to make that decision because I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I've definitely been in several studios or jams where it didn't feel like I could. And then, yeah, like check in. How does this feel? If you are like holding your breath and just waiting for it to be done, just don't do it. <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to force yourself to go running because you read it, like, you know, posted in magazines, like five reasons you should go running. You can, if you like riding a bike, like ride a bike. Or if you like walking, walk. Like there's not one particular way that movement has to look, even though we have been taught that there is one way that movement has to look. And then find like, over time, you'll find your own reasons. Like maybe you'll be like me and you're like, it's a stress reliever or... Maybe you just feel confident when you move. That's like another one of mine. Or I don't know, like there's so many reasons. I've heard of people who are like, I feel like I'm ready for anything or I can like take over the world when they're moving the body. So like, go for it, whatever your thing is. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. You know, it's funny because I definitely know like the eating disorder. This is like where the eating disorder sneaks in. I'll hear people be like, you know, they're really overdoing it with their movement. Like they need to run like for several hours a day or whatever instances. And they're like, it relieves my stress and anxiety when I do this. And it's like, you're actually just coddling the eating disorder too. So think about like, if you're having anxiety for lightening up on your exercise, like it's probably because the eating disorder is telling you this is right thing to do for you. This is good for you. But when you are healed and your relationship with movement is different, the positive reinforcement for movement are things like it's a legitimate, it's stress reliever. It makes you feel really good, not because you are quieting down the eating disorder voice, but because you actually like feel like that was really fun and you just connected with yourself. Mm -hmm. Just notice if you were saying, oh, well, they're saying it's a stress reliever and, you know, maybe I can Mm -hmm. keep moving or exercising every day for X number of hours because it relieves stress. If it's relieving eating disorder, it's not the same. I would even see like what's the least amount of movement you can do in a week like <laughs> just a week don't do anything yeah. or do a like stretch and unwind like chill style practice and let rest be okay like we do not need to work out or move your body every day you need rest days your body needs rest days to, in order to heal and if it's things like i'm not as familiar with running but like say if you're doing like leg day if you do like same muscle groups two days in a row you're not giving your muscles any time to heal. So it's not going to be, even if you're like telling yourself that this is for good reasons, you're not going to gain much out of the practice. You're just going to stress your body out and then not have time to heal from it. To like rest, see how it feels to not move much, especially if you're in like that area where like I've definitely been there where I did a bunch. And then after that, how can you change what your practice looks like? Like how can it not take up 
most of your day? Like, how can you rest or creatively rest? Like if maybe you do like one single stretch because your legs are sore. Great. Awesome. Maybe you do like a walk around the block because you've been in your apartment all day. (laughs) You need to get some sunshine. Like think of it like tiny doses, especially at first, because it is really easy to go into that. Like, oh, it's stress relief. So I'm going to do this for the whole day. Like find other stress relieving things too, like art or whatever, like do other things. Because unless you're preparing for some sort of like marathon, I don't know how to do that. But like, I assume in those cases, it probably takes up more of your time unless you're preparing for something extremely physically strenuous. Your movement practice does not and should not be every day, all day. Yeah. Think about what it could look like when you do like minimize it. And I think it's important, like in recovery, there are moments you need to stop exercise, right? And just let your body rest and heal and slowly integrate non-strenuous forms of exercise, like that nice little gentle walk to get sunshine around the block and making sure you keep that in check. It doesn't turn into Mm -hmm. this thing you take to 25 like laps around the block, right? Like, or a very nice quick YouTube video of yoga, whatever it needs to be. It's like, you want to almost minimize things at the very beginning to take to sever that belief that you need to earn your food. Mm -hmm. So if you decide to rest, don't let it impact your food. That doesn't mean you should be restricted because you're not exercising. If you see that happening in your life, right? Like if you say, oh, I rested today, but I also didn't eat breakfast or whatever. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, then that's really not helping you either. It's like, Mm -hmm. keep nourishing your body to teach yourself that, food and movement aren't dependent on each other, right? Yeah. So I kind of just like went on a little mini rant there, but (laughs) no, I did too earlier. It's okay. (laughs) Kind of fun. But yeah, yeah, so I'm really grateful for everything you've been able to share today. I guess, do you have any final tips or words of wisdom for people with eating disorders who are trying to heal their relationship with movement? I would say... Take a step back first, especially if you're early on in the healing process. Give yourself some space. I know it's scary. And I know that, you know, that brings up a whole other array of like whole other variety of things. Take it minute by minute and start to notice when your brain's like, okay, I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to do power yoga for three hours or something. I sometimes will say like, why do I feel like I need to do this? Like, where does that come from? And if I'm thinking like I want something intense because I'm really, really stressed out and I have so much extra energy because of all my anxiety, then I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to do three hours. That's excessive. I'm going to like say 20 minutes or maybe a walk or like, how can I reframe this? So noticing like any of those beliefs that come up with the movement, like, oh, I'm going to do running. I'm going to run for four hours. Like, okay, no, like notice when that stuff happens. And then as time goes on, See if you can integrate those moments of checking in, of being really present with yourself into the movement practice itself. I know at first it's like, you can do it in little doses. Over time, let that like check-in be several times throughout your practice and notice like, okay, why am I, if if you're in a pose in a yoga class, for example, and you are not feeling good, you need rest, you take rest. Like integrate little moments of checking in and then eventually let that take up the whole practice and let the practice be 
Like, okay, I'm going to do take this approach because this is what I need right now. My body's telling me I need to rest. I'm going to chill. And then, no, maybe you're resting. You're like, ooh, that pose is feel great. And then you do that pose. Like it's, it's not like you just all of a sudden are great at this. It's a practice in itself and it takes time. So don't be too hard on yourself. If you catch yourself, you know, going right back into, say it's like a couple months down the road and you've been able to, you know, say go for a bike ride sometimes because it's helpful and whatever. And then one day you catch yourself, you know, riding your bike for like three hours and you're back into that same thing. It doesn't mean that the progress hasn't happened. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. I noticed I did this. I'm going to like get off my bike and walk or I'm going to change gears. Not, I didn't mean on the bike. That wasn't intentional. <laughs> like I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to like change approaches, <laughs> change approaches. It also does help sometimes to find a community. I know that there is one, I think, through Meg. I have like a rebel movement club of all movement classes that are not like, well, that are anti-diet. And sometimes having spaces there where you can like just know that it's all people who've been through, you know, somewhat similar things. And they are also doing this work of taking diet culture away from movement practice. So basically, first, like if I were to summarize, take it easy go slow, take rest. How can you integrate being more mindful of your practice of like while you're in it, before you're in it, being mindful of why you're doing it. If it goes anywhere near like punishment, weight loss, earning things, sidestep, move away from it, change your approach or lessen the whatever it is. Know that it's not linear. Recovery is not linear. It takes a long time. Hey, that you're not alone. Finding community in whichever aspect feels most comfortable to you can be really helpful. And just, yeah, be nice to yourself. (laughs) Oh, yay. That's so great. I think the reminder to just make the habit of checking in with yourself is so helpful and really powerful to leave everyone with because we forget to do that. And we're often to ignore how we feel. And I think a really powerful part of recovery is learning again or learning for the first time to ask yourself, what do I need? How do mm-hmm. I feel? Mm-hmm. You know, and going from there. So with that, Billy, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate everything you shared today. It's been thank a you. pleasure. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> 